Good afternoon. Good to see everybody. I'm sure I'll say morning quite a bit, just because that's habitually in my mind. But uh, it's fun, isn't it, to come on a Saturday afternoon, shake things up a little bit. Did I say Saturday? (laughs) That's my Freudian slip for missing that Saturday evening service, if some of you guys remember that thing, right? Um, Well, the leadership have asked me to do something a little different today. Um, Just in light of just a lot of new people coming to our church, we are going to uh, do... My teaching is going to really be to lay out the vision and mission of Crossroads today. I think it's time for that. We're not a church that likes to take ourselves too seriously, which includes even our vision and mission. Um, We don't like to stare at our navel too much. We like to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, In my mind, every Sunday is a a vision, mission Sunday. Um, But there is a time to just articulate clearly who we feel that God has called us to be and what he's calling us to go after. Two questions that we just love to ask here. Um, Who are you? What are you doing here? And I think a a better way to actually ask those questions, who are we? And what are we doing here? And as I see it right now, Crossroads has been around for about 12 years now. Um, That just blows me away. I just see this massive opportunity that's before us that I want you to see. I want you to see it with your eyes. I want you to seize it with your heart and with your life. So what I thought um, would be helpful, especially for those of you who haven't been around for a while, is to kind of start by highlighting our journey, where we've been, uh, where we are in the journey. Um, Again, this is not going to be navel-gazing, but this is about remembering because God is constantly asking his people to remember. He says things like, I want you to remember how I redeemed you. I want you to remember how I led you out of Egypt. I want you to remember how I led you in the desert. I want you to remember me and my great name. In fact, the first place where I take uh, groups when we go to Israel, the very first place, they get to see these things right here. Anybody know what those are? Those are standing stones. Because in biblical times, what people would do when they would see God act in great power is they would erect a stone pile or or sometimes stones as great as those. It was their way of putting a stake in the ground. Those stones are a memorial to God. To say, we experience God's power. We experience God's grace. In fact, I always dreamed that if we'd ever get a building, that uh, maybe someone would donate some stones like that. We could put them out there in our front, front yard. Because what's on those stones? Anything? I mean, what do those stones beg you to do? Why are they here? And I love for our, our, our sons and our daughters or, or guests who come to this church and say, what are these stones doing here? For us to say, well, uh, these are stones of remembrance where we remember when God acted in power in our midst. At this point in our journey, I, I, I see four big stones. The first stone 
would be the stone of breaking. Those of you who've come to Crossroads in the last even several years probably don't know the miracle that Crossroads is today. Crossroads shouldn't be here from an earthly perspective. Because the first thing that God did with Crossroads is he broke us. I was part of a leadership team in those early days that was young. We were cocky. We, we were. We, we, we honestly were like the undergrad who takes a class in psychology and now thinks that they can figure out every human being on earth. I mean, we had just enough church 101 to think that we were going to show the world how to do church. On top of that, and I'm just being very blunt here, if we're honest, we were seeking to be one of the cool churches in town. And I think what God simply did to us is he broke us. He made us weak. And I don't have to go into all the details, but it was, it was a horrible season right out of the gates for this church. And some of you were here, and you remember it very well. Uh, the, the best way for me to put this is God humiliated us. He took this church, and he led us into the barren desert. And all he said then is, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I'm going to provide. I want you to trust that I'm going to get you through this. I want you to trust that I'm going to be just enough, that I'm going, I'm going to meet every need that you have. I'll tell you what happened during this time. A lot of people bailed. Staff bailed. Some of you who are here from the very beginning, I know who you are. And I just want to say thank you because I don't know if this church would be around if you hadn't stayed. So thank you. But what we learned during this first season is something that's going to burn inside our guts probably and hopefully forever is this amazing truth. God loves weakness. He loves it. In fact, I'll take it even further than this. And I, I base this not just on experience, but I base this on carefully studying God's word. When, when, when God wants to use someone, when God wants to use a group, when God wants to use a marriage, when God wants to use a family, when God wants to use a church, what he's going to look for is weakness. And when he sees weakness... It's like his heart says, I can use that. I can use that person. I can use that marriage. I can use that family. I can use that church. And I don't think anyone articulates this better than, than the Apostle Paul. Because when, when the gospel starts going into the Western Greco-Roman world, places like Corinth, uh, right into the heart of the Roman Empire, a world that glorified the individual, that exalted the big shots. And it was hard for these Corinthian Christians to give up their value system, to, to give up the way in which they looked at life, the way that they looked at people, where, where, where life is all about being the best, being the best looking, being the best athlete, being the strongest, 
being the richest, being on top. It was hard for the Corinthian church to give this up. And so they projected this then in in the way they did church. And they projected this on on the apostle Paul. Paul, what about you? We're going to listen to you. If you're going to have any credibility with us, you need to prove yourself to us that you're a big shot. That you're a super apostle. And I like Paul because you can tell when you read First and Second Corinthians really carefully, like he's trying so hard to skate around this and not get entangled in this whole worldly way of, of, of looking at things. But then in Second Corinthians 3, I think it is, uh, Paul says, okay, you want my letters of recommendation? I'll give to you my letters of recommendation. My le- letter of recommendation is you and what God has written on your hearts. So stop looking at me and look at the work that God is doing in you. And then he gets to the end of 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And it's like he, he, he has to give in to their demand. You want my credentials? I'm going to sound like a fool going down this road. But here's my credential. I suffer. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 29, he just lays out suffering after suffering after suffering. And then he concludes it with this. If I must boast... I will boast of the things that make me weak. That's what Paul says. Which is why Paul celebrates suffering. Because suffering is, 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 is the thing that, that God uses in Paul's life to show him how weak he is. And we look at this and we hear Paul talk like this and even I say, Paul, are you crazy that the thing you're going to boast about is your suffering and your weakness? And Paul, I think, would say, yes, because that is the only way a person can existentially know the gospel. And the gospel is the grace and the power of God to take something that's dead and raise it to life. It's God making something new. And God's power, God's grace, they're always unleashed through weakness. It's unleashed through suffering. And Crossroads has learned this. We learn this not through a sermon. We've we've learned this through life. And it's why I'm already getting emotional. I preached a a, a vision sermon about six years ago. uh, Similar to the one that I'm preaching today. I preached it on the same day that I got on a plane and, and went to Israel for four months. This was just days after doing a funeral for Kristen Stowe, who tragically lost her life in a snowmobile accident. That was kind of Crossroads' first funeral. And at a time when I was feeling especially weak, and I, I, I remember doing this funeral, and I'll never forget the person 
who didn't leave my side for a moment. He walked with me where I went. He sat with me. When I got done preaching, not knowing where I said, he looked at me and he said, it's the most powerful thing I've ever heard, Rod. It's Derek Pages. Only to know, you, you, you think you get a, 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 a dosage of suffering, and you don't know how you're going to get through it. But God gets you through it. Sometimes only to give you more. For those of you who don't know, Derek is a good friend. He was our youth pastor. He was the son to Doug and Linda Tages, husband to Charity Tages, father to two beautiful girls and a son who is also lost, brother to Hillary Tages. And really, these, these events that I'm describing only are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, of God pushing weakness into this church. And that's been his plan. And as a result of this, Crossroads is very comfortable with weakness. We're comfortable with suffering because we know it's what God uses to perfect his power in us. In fact, think of the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is this belief that the God of the universe became weak and he suffered And all this suffering ended with a cross. And that's the gospel, which tells us two things about ourselves. It screams these things to me every day because I preach the gospel to myself every day. First of all, it tells us that we're that desperate, we're that wicked, we're that broken, we're that helpless, we are that weak, that the God of the universe would have to go to that length to rescue us from our weak, helpless, broken, wicked condition. This is why we will always be comfortable with weakness at crossroads. Especially knowing what the second thing, that the, that the gospel screams at us. Not only are we that broken and that wicked and that sinful, but we're also that loved. The God of the universe died for us. Because we're that precious to him. I don't know why. Sometimes I ask myself, God, why do you love us that much? Why do, you, why do you love me that much? But the cross at the end of the day screams to us that he loves us and that God loves weak, desperate people. In fact, sometimes after a Sunday gathering, someone will come up to me and say something like this to me. They'll say, Rod, the message today, it just lifted me up so much, it exalted me. And, and then, I, I kid you not, the very next person will come up to me and say, wow, the message you just hit was like a two-by-four over, over top of my head just crushing me. I'll just smile inside knowing, okay, the gospel has been preached today. Because when I hear these two responses, this is what the gospel is. It, it humbles the big shots, the self-righteous, the self-absorbed. And it exalts the little people, the weak, the desperate. In fact, when you read the gospels... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
All you have to do is take note of the people who are drawn to Jesus and the people who are repulsed by Jesus. Or take note of the people that Jesus is drawn to or the, the people that Jesus is repulsed by. And what you will quickly see is that it's desperate, weak people who are continually taking comfort in Jesus, who are falling at his feet, who are kissing them, who are, who are crying tears, um, who, who, who just love them. And it's self-righteous, self-absorbed religious people who are so infuriated with him that they want to kill him. And this is what the gospel does. It undresses us. It's, it, it's God's claw that just gets sunk deep into our, into our heart. It, it, it exposes us. It, it, it rips us open. And it shows us how weak and vulnerable we really are, and self-righteous, self-sufficient people don't love that, but weak, desperate people do. So that's our first standing stone. The standing stone of brokenness. It'll always be before us. Because we've learned through it that God's power is perfected, perfected through weakness. Standing stone number two. These will be a little faster. Discipleship. Now, this one kind of snuck up on us. Um, we were, in the day, like most churches, we were pouring all of our energy into our weekend gatherings. In fact, we were going through the life of Elijah at the time, and we were coming to the great Mount Carmel story where, where, where Elijah calls fire down from heaven. And we were in the planning meeting. We were talking, like, okay, is this the week? Should we go for it? Like, would God send fire down on us and, and unleash revival? And so we were going for it, and then boom. Snowstorm. First time we canceled church on a Sunday morning. We were hardcore about that, weren't we, Randy? Um, and what that did is it just allowed for me some more time to just look further into the Elijah story, into the text, and, and, and I saw kind of what happened Fire did come, come down, and all the nation of Israel was bowed on their feet. Revival came for one day, and then it was gone. Kind of like Sunday mornings, they come and they go. And then I also saw how depressed Elijah became. He became so depressed that he said to God that he wanted to die, and then he ran all the way to Mount Sinai, where kind of like Moses before him, he found a cleft in a rock, and he kind of just said to God, God, where are you? I need to hear from you. Show me your face. And God sends this, this exodus experience to Elijah. All of a sudden, there's an earthquake, and wind, and thunder, and lightning, and fire. But to Elijah's surprise, God wasn't in any of those things. And then the text said that God spoke to Elijah through a soft, soft whisper. Because when you're in the desert, you don't need fire and earthquake and tornado. You just... A whisper will do. In fact, uh, 
The commentators say that the word for whisper there is a word that's used in Song of Solomon to talk about what two lovers do when they're talking intimately with each other. And the thing that God whispered to Elijah was this, Elijah, I want you to do ministry my way in the way that I unleash the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to be through big events where fire comes down from heaven. He says, the way you're going to do this, Elijah, go make a disciple. So this is our second standing stone. It's the stone of discipleship. And this is what we realized. We realized that to erect this stone, we had to smash another stone. We had to smash the stone of Mount Carmel. We had to smash the stone of making church all about Sunday morning worship services. Of church being reduced to this right here, stage audience in the show. We had to smash it. And we continually have to just assess ourselves. And sometimes when we see it, it beginning to uh, pop up again, we, 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 we have to smash it. Because more than ever before in Crossroads history, now is the time for us to forsake this way of thinking that this is how God is going to work. This is easy You come, we preach, we sing, we go home. But this was not Jesus' way. Jesus' way of unleashing the kingdom of heaven was much more difficult because it involved time, time spent, it involved relationship. Elijah, go make a disciple. Jesus began his whole ministry with these words. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, come follow me. Come walk after me. And then at the end of his ministry, he ends it with these words. He says, now to these disciples who had spent three years of being with Jesus and they were with Jesus so that they could learn to walk like Jesus and become like Jesus. Jesus says, okay, now go make disciples. And so this whole value forced us to ask this question, then what is a disciple? And we concluded that a disciple is essentially three things. First, a disciple is someone who has a passion in their heart to become like Jesus. And the way that we're going to become like Jesus is we're going to sit at his feet, and we're going to drink in his words like we're thirsty for water. And we're going to take him in so we can get to know him. And we're going to get to know him so that we can see who he is and what he's about so we can become like him. We're going to watch him. We're going to watch how he walked, how he walked the path of obedience. And we're going to walk as Jesus walked. That's what a disciple is. The second thing we, 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 we determine about discipleship is that a disciple is someone who lives authentically in authentic community. Because this is how Jesus did it. They, they, they did life together at the deepest level. It's impossible to be a lone ranger and a disciple. Disciples are people who, who live and move in authentic relationships. That they're, they're being known and they're knowing others. It's where all facades are, are, are gone. All game playing is is. is is over. It's where we're real. 
and raw together before our Savior. And third, a disciple is, is someone who takes the life that they have in Christ that's not perfect, but it's real. And they take all that Christ has poured in them and they pour it into someone else. Because disciples are people who make disciples. They reproduce the life they have in Christ into someone else. So here's my question. Are you a disciple? Or are you just a church attender? Because that's what we're going for at Crossroads. And we're fighting for it. That's why every other Sunday you don't see me up here preaching because the way Rod Van Salkema reproduces his life into someone else, I want to raise up the next generation of pastors who are champions for Jesus Christ. We are seeking to be a church of disciples who make disciples. Standing stone number three. Got to get going. Years ago, uh, we, we, we did this series called The City of God where... We, we looked at the Bible as being a tale of two cities, uh, the city of, of man and the city of God. And I, I think this season uh, particularly shaped us as a church because what we learn is that as the church, which is the city of God, that God wants to place that city of God into every city. Kind of because as cities go, our culture goes. And here's what we also recognize. We recognize that, yes, Jesus came into the world to, to be born, to die, and through his death um, be raised and ascended. And, and all of that is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we also learn that between his birth and his death, there's also significant things going on in Jesus' life. And that he unleashed a revolution. And that he's a revolutionary. And so, um, he, the, the, the place where you want to get the heartbeat of this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, 5 to 7. And in this sermon, at the beginning, Jesus says, you are a city set on a hill. He's saying that to his disciples. And as the city, Jesus says that one of our main purposes as disciples is to be this distinct counterculture. That we are to be crazy different than the world. And it's not crazy different in obnoxious ways. It's crazy different in life-giving ways. It's, it's crazy different in the way we treat people, in the way we use money, sex, and power. The things that we value, the things that we live for, we're different. The way we do marriage, we're different. The way we do family, we're different. The way we treat our neighbor, we're different. The way we love our neighbor and our enemies, we're different. Now, we don't live lives for ourselves, but we live our lives. We lay them down for the sake of others. This is a big part of Jesus' vision for changing the world and transforming cities and renewing neighborhoods and rescuing lost people. It's to raise up a community of people that are distinctively Christ-like and then pushing that into the heart of the city. And look where we are right now. We're here. Are we different? 
we getting pushed in? See, because all this stuff means is that crossroads can't exist for itself. We can't exist for, for people just like us. It means we're not even here to build a great church. It means that we are here to serve Grand Rapids. And if we're going to transform Grand Rapids, and I hope you guys are still thinking along those lines, it's going to be done the Jesus way, which means it's not going to be done by us seeking power. It's not going to be done by us trying to take over or even by putting the right people in office. We exert power, not by seeking power, but by giving up power and laying our lives down as Jesus laid his life down for the sake of every person we come in contact with irrespective of who they are, what they believe, what nationality they are, what race they are, what gender they are. We lay our lives down. Not you for me, but me for you. And see, we're only going to change this city to the extent that we move in. So we, we have a calling to move into the marketplace and into the medical mile and into the university and into the neighborhood. We're going to go in and, and when things happen and, 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 and crises hit and there's earthquake or famine or whatever it might be, when everybody else leaves, Christians are going to be there serving people in need. Because this is exactly how the early church won its world for Christ. They became a counterculture movement. They didn't just preach a life-changing gospel message. We're going to preach it. It's going to be on our lips. But they, they, they were the message. They became the message. And then they just moved that message right into every city, in every neighborhood. And in time, they changed it. And see, this is why our partnerships with, with the bee shop, and you heard about it this morning with the boiler room, and, and Abba's answer, our, our ministry to um, families who are adopting. They've never been stronger than they are right now. It's why we're making huge investments in stocking school. It's why we're making investments in, in Trinity Church, Oxford, and Neil Martin. It's why organic, missional, small little communities where the kingdom of heaven is being built birthed and unleashed. It's more important to us than this right here. <laughs> Help us. Please. This can't be church. Look at us. All domesticated, sitting in nice rows. That world isn't going to church anymore. The church needs to go to the world. You have to. And as our church gets bigger, we're going to love small even more. We're going to love organic even more. We're going to love missional even more. And I want you to hear this. Pastors and elders... You don't exist for us in our dreams. We exist for you in your dreams. Dream. Dreams of the kingdom of heaven.
Standing stone number four. Last one. I can't believe you guys are here right now because I preached a sermon on this when you came to our church the first time. Laklaka. Abraham, get out. Moses, go. Get out. Isaiah, who will go for me? I will. God, I'll go for you. Disciples, after being with Jesus three years, as the Father sent me, says Jesus to them, so I'm sending you. Go! Get out! From safety, comfort, convenience, we have to let these things that are cancers to the kingdom of heaven be left behind so we can go. We've got to go. The Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. Because there's nothing static about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is this dynamic thing. It's always moving. It's always changing. It's, it's people being sent out. It's the Wilsons. It's the Duvals who are serving as elders here. And then, boom, God calls them to get out. It's Donnie Irving who, who lives right now in, with, with the poor in a poor part of Grand Rapids. He heard the call of God to get out, to leave comfort, and to go. Countless others, I could name name after name of people who've been called to leave comfort, to leave safety, family, friends, to heed God's call to go, to, to move into chaos, to adopt the orphan, to step into where our world is in pain. I'm telling you, sometimes this call to go is just as big as walking across the street and loving and serving our neighbors. We must be a church that engages the world, enters chaos, dines with sinners and prostitutes because the world is no longer coming to us. We must go to it. So in light of all these things, I got five quick charges. In this season, I want us to reject every form of consumer Christianity. And what do I mean by consumer Christianity? If you've been to the big house, to a college football game, you, you, you know that 110,000 people fit in that big house. Yet there are 110,000 people who are sitting down, stuffing their uh, mouths with hot dogs. And there are 22 people on the field sacrificing their bodies. I sometimes think that's just a perfect picture of the church today. Because we turn this thing into a spectator sport, and Jesus never intended for the church to be this. He didn't die for that kind of church expression. So if you're coming here and you find yourself being an armchair quarterback to just kind of critique things, I'm going to ask you to either stop that or find another church. Please. Armchair quarterbacking is lame. It is. One of my favorite descriptions of Crossroads is, is uh, years ago, someone called Crossroads the locker room church. 
I'm telling you, I love that. First of all, I'm a coach. Really, that's, what I, that's, that's my job here at Crossroads. My, my, my job is to coach. You, you, you guys are the team. And if you guys want to know what I dream about is that every person at this church would be on the playing field for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be going for it, and that we as pastors would coach you guys up and train you and, and, and push you out there. That's crossroads. One more uh, charge. We must be, we must continue to be a Matthew 18 culture. And what I mean by a Matthew 18 culture is we are a church that does not gossip behind people's backs. We do not listen to the scorner. When we have an issue with someone, we're going to go face to face, heart to heart with that person. Now, here's the deal. Trust me. I know Crossroads has its issues. We are far from being a perfect church. And as we as a church go for things, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. If you have an issue with me, please come to me. I just want to say, I'll I'll make that place as safe as possible. Come talk to me. Don't talk to my sister, Marcy. A lot of you go there. Come to me. If you have a problem with, with, with one of the pastors, please make a point to talk to them. If you have a, a, an issue with, with the church, find an elder and, and, and go face-to-face, heart-to-heart with them. Because unity, the Bible says, where, where there's unity, God bestows his blessing. And we've been so blessed over all these years to have unity. And I'd hate for that to be destroyed right now. Another calling to you. Would all of us seek passionately to become a disciple? That's what we're going for. We're not here to just sit in rows, sing songs, listen to sermons. What we're going for is a 24-7, 365 walk with Christ. And if you need a Paul in your life, pray for a Paul. Come to a pastor. We'll do our best to find you a Paul. Someone who can pour Jesus into you. If you need a Timothy, someone that you can pour Jesus into, pray for that person. Come to us as as, as pastors. We'll help make some of those connections happen. Finally, I started with weakness. I'm going to end with weakness. Crossroads is a church that was birthed out of weakness. We value weakness. We welcome weakness. We welcome weak people. We're, we're, we're comfortable with exposing weakness and our need for one another. And it's weak people who pray. Self-sufficient people don't even understand prayer. But if you want to find people praying, it's probably people who are weak and know their weakness. I'm calling this church to prayer. We don't have any specific program. I know Randy and Marcia have something on Tuesday nights where if you're looking to gather in in a community with other people in the community that are going for it and praying for revival in Grand Rapids, that is a great place to start. But I want to call our church, all of us, 
in moments of, of secrecy and privacy uh, with the Savior that we would pray that we'd seek him. If there was ever a time for this church to strip everything back but have just Jesus, it's right now. And so I'm putting that on you. And maybe it starts tonight. I know all of us can't physically do this, but let's get on our knees if we can do it right now. Just bow before him. And if you can't physically, please feel free to just sit where you are. We've been in Hebrews where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. See, one thing weak people know, they know that when Jesus is all you have, Jesus is all you need. Maybe some of you right now have a prayer that you would just like to pray out loud.